Over the last several weeks, we've been occupied with Paul's description of the unbreakable golden chain of salvation, which he has provided for us and which is so wonderfully captured for us in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 30, and which the Apostle Paul summarizes in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We spoke, didn't we, last time about how Paul in this one power-packed verse instructs us about the whole sweep of divine redemption, taking us from predestination in eternity past, then taking us into time by speaking of God's actual calling of us to salvation by regenerating our dead human hearts and granting us new life in Christ, then justifying us, that is, declaring us not guilty for our multitudinous sins against God on account of the righteousness and sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, and lastly, telling us that our salvation is so secure Even our glorification, our being made ultimately like Jesus Christ, is spoken of as an established fact. We are predestined. Predestined to a love relationship, foreloved, from the Father toward us. And it started before time itself began. Called in time and the fellowship with Jesus Christ, declared not guilty of eternal judgment on account of the life and death of Jesus, and ultimately made like Christ in our glorified state. Paul is so caught up in this description of the whole sweep of divine redemption that he now comes in verses 31 to 39 of Romans 8, and he can hardly contain himself. It is so much like this that right out of this description, not just of verses 26 to 29, but almost as it were a crescendo of verse 30, he comes right out of that and launches into a marvelous recitation of the security of Jesus Christ's love for His people, which concludes this tremendous chapter. And I submit to you that there's more going on in verse 31 of Romans 8 than merely Paul's rhetorical question coming out of verse 30. As grand as that is, as wonderful as verse 30 is, and we studied it in one full message together, there's even something more here with this rhetorical question that Paul asks in Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? I believe that Paul may even be asking the question, not with regard to what he's just been saying in verses 26 to 30, nor maybe even just the 
verses prior to that, verses 18 all the way to verse 30, I think what you may have here is Paul concluding the entire section of Romans chapters 5 through 8. This may indeed be the capturing of the entire middle section of what we have so far studied, Romans 5 through 8. Romans 1 to 4 certainly hangs together as a unit. And Romans 5 to 8 also hangs together as a second major unit of thought here in Paul's letter to the Romans. The main thought, of course, of Romans chapters 5 through 8 being the topic of the believer's security of salvation. And here, in Romans 8, verses 31 to 39... Paul may well be using these final words not simply to sum up this great sweep of divine redemption that we have seen in chapter 8 verse 30 and not just even in verses 26 to 29 and not just in verses 18 all the way to verse 30. This may be actually the concluding section of the whole enchilada. This is phenomenal. This is an amazing conclusion to this whole section. He says, in effect, what shall we say in view of these things? What are the these things? What shall we say in view of these things, whatever they are? The these things, I think he's referring to, are the these things of all matters of theological and practical reflection from Romans 5.1 all the way through to Romans 8.30. And if he is doing this, how important are the words that he's about to utter? How important they are. How would you conclude this? What would you say? If you've been teaching your church, if you've been writing a letter to your children, if you were to think of these great theological and practical truths, how would you conclude? What would you want to say? How could you end it? Well, what would you possibly say in summarizing fashion that would capture all of it? Well, I don't think we can do any better than exactly what he did. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul is affirming the concept of our salvation being secure in Christ, summarizing all that he has been saying about the believer's security in these four chapters. Indeed, go back to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith... And haven't we in Romans 8 been talking a lot about justification? Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. That's a security idea. That's an assurance idea. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, that's security, that's assurance, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, that's security, that's assurance, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's security. That's assurance. The reconciliation has occurred. So at the beginning of Romans 5, and now at the end of this section in Romans 8, in these concluding remarks, Paul again is summarizing, concluding this great crescendo about our security, about our assurance. And that's why I've titled this paragraph, The Security of Christ's Love. And according to many, many people down through the centuries... This concluding paragraph of verses 31 to 39 of Romans 8 may well be the most beautifully written text of all Pauline literature. Listen to it. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Most beautiful. Most lovely. And after having studied what we had already studied in Romans 8, 26 to 30, to say nothing of all of these four glorious chapters, is it any wonder that Paul begins with this question as he concludes, what shall we say in view of these things? 
what shall we say? I'm glad he's not speechless. He goes on to tell us what's in his heart. And we can scarcely take in the description of divine love for such undeserving sinners as ourselves. Paul, we can't say much of anything. We are overwhelmed with God's goodness and His love to us. Is not this the only appropriate response to divine love extended to us in Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross? Beloved, I trust that when we're through with verses 31 to 39, we're going to be even more humbled and ingratiated to our God for His divine love, which has enveloped us in Christ. Now, I want us to unpack verses 31 to 39, and I want you to notice that verse 31 doesn't contain the only rhetorical device which Paul often uses, and that is the use of this question-answer format. He'll actually use it in these verses four times. Four times in this concluding paragraph. Look at it with me. Verse 31. First question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Second question. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Verse 34. Third question. Who is to condemn? Verse 35. Fourth and final question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ. I suspect, allowing the concluding chapter of Paul and the text of this great chapter conclusion to be our outliner for us, there it is. Our outline is four questions. It would serve us well to speak of the security of Christ's love by simply putting these four questions as our four outline points. Let's go over the first one. Simply stated, here's the question. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Notice his answer. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, I've already said that the first rhetorical question in verse 31, that phrase, what then shall we say to these things, is the bridge that links the whole of Romans 5 through chapter 8, verse 30. It's the bridge to Paul's concluding statement. And I believe that's true. I believe that's accurate. But it could also be true that this second question here in the latter part of verse 31 if God is for us, who can be against us, is actually the answer itself to the first question. Let's read it that way. What then shall we say to these things? What things? All the things that we've been talking about, Paul says, about our security, about our assurance. And here's his answer. If God is for us, who can be against us? What shall we say to these things? Here's what we say. If God is for us, who can be against us? No matter the particulars, in general, what shall we say to all of these realities? 
Well, no matter what else we say, we say this. If God is for us, who can be against us? If that's all you knew, baby Christian, that would be fine enough. God is for me. Who can be against me? You say, ah, but I'm not a baby Christian. I'm seasoned in the faith. I'm old and mature. Well, then for you, let's go on. Maybe that second question is the answer to the first rhetorical device that he gives, but maybe it isn't. Or at least, maybe that's only a partial answer. Maybe it is true to say, because God is for us, no one can be against us and that be that. But maybe there's more to this. Maybe you want more, I want more. I want more knowledge about this salvation, this security that I have in Christ. And what Paul may actually be doing, and I think this is plausible, if not even the right answer to the question, he's actually giving a second question, and that is, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer follows in verse 32. Rhetorical question that sets up the whole concluding section of chapters 5 through 8. That's the first part of verse 31. And then a separate question. If God is for us, who can be against us with its own answer given in verse 32? And Paul might be saying it like this. If God, who created the universe, is for us, that's who pair, on our behalf... If He's done all that He's done for us on our behalf, the one and only who is the powerful and supreme sovereign over all things, then who can be against us? Who can thwart us? Who can take God on? Who can do it? Isn't it reminiscent of the latter part of chapter 11 when... The Bible says so clearly through Paul, and who became his counselor? Who's telling God what to do? Who's giving him insight that he doesn't already have? This is what he's saying. If this is the way the structuring of the sentence is to go, then that would be certainly an incredible way to conclude things here in Romans 8. All of the things that he said all of the divine realities, all of the accomplishment that God has done for us in Christ, that's the only way to conclude. If God is for us, if this is the supreme sovereign that you've been telling us about, Paul, then if, then if that God is for us, then who can be against us? This is a marvelous answer. You say, you haven't given us the answer. That's right. And you know what kind of answer Paul gives? It's it's an amazing answer. Verse 32, look at it. He who did not spare his own son, this is the answer to the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? Because there are going to be those people out there who are going to say, plenty of people, plenty of beings, plenty of things are against you. Paul's got to answer that question. Maybe these Roman believers themselves and maybe ourselves when we're pitted up against a whole lot of things, a whole lot of beings in this universe, maybe there's a fair question in their minds and in our minds as to whether or not we have the power, we have the reality of divine accomplishment 
so that we may be able to say confidently and with assurance, who can be against me? Really, seriously, who can? This is what his answer is. You have an answer about assurance, about security of salvation in your own heart. If you have the the question in your mind, what's going to happen on that great day? Here's what Paul says. You ought to memorize this. Here's what he says. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Even though there's a question mark at the end, it's not a question at all. It's a declaration. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, if this is true, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? What shall we say in view of all these things? Paul, for all these four chapters now, he says, I tell you what we've looked at. You ask me to give you in simple, summary fashion, okay, I will. My first, my simple, my straightforward answer is this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well then, who is this God who is for us? And who are these who are against us? Don't just tell me that. Explain it to me. And he says, here's my answer. Here's my answer. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not with Him graciously give us all things? The Greek text of verse 32 has an intensive little particle which begins the verse, ge, G-E. Hos ge. Which could be translated, even. That's a great intensifying of this idea. It would go something like this. Even He, even He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If He's even given you the Son of God in sacrificial death, will He not also with Christ graciously give you all things? Well, this is a profound argument for the security of the believer. It's absolutely profound because what Paul does here is he argues for what we could call God's value scale, God's priority scale. You say, what is that? It's simply this. If God has already or even especially given you the greatest gift that He could possibly give you, The greatest gift that you could possibly receive, giving you His own unique Son as a sacrifice for your sins, don't you think all the rest of God's gracious bounty will be given to you as well? You see the argument? If He's even given you Christ, His own Son, who is a sacrifice for your sins, do you have any doubt in your mind? Is there any question at all that God, if He's given you this greatest of all gifts, that He will not with Christ graciously give you all other things? That humbles us. It should humble us. It should show us unmistakably that we should have no doubts. 
if He's already given us the greater, if He's already given us, us the greatest, how is it that we would doubt that He would be able to secure us, to love us with an unending love, to grant us in this life a hope for the life to come, to give us all that we need to make it in this life, including the precious Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the people of faith, to encourage us and help us. Won't He give us graciously all these things if He's even already given us Christ? What else could He do? What else is there? Don't doubt that He wouldn't give you what you need. Of course He's going to give you what you need. He's already given you Christ. You know what they should rather be thinking in light of Romans 8, 31 and 32? Do you think that the God who created the universe could figure out a way to righteously forgive our sin through the giving of the greatest, most costly gift He could give, that being the sacrifice of Christ, but He couldn't figure out a way to totally secure the permanence of that gift? Of course He can. That's our thinking. Of course He can. He's the God of the universe. He created all of us. He created the worlds that are in existence. Of course. And if He's given us the greatest gift, why would we doubt that He could give us the permanence of that gift throughout this life and the life to come? Why would we doubt such a thing? We shouldn't. It should give us assurance. But you say, but what about those who are against us. Are you saying that Paul is saying in this passage that there really isn't anyone against us? No. Emphatically no. There are a lot of things against us. Of course, Satan is against Christians. He is said, isn't he, in the book of Revelation to be the accuser of the brethren day and night? What about the evils of this world? A lot of evil things out to get us as Christians. Isn't that enough to derail us from our secure relationship with Christ? And if that isn't enough, what about our own selves? Isn't it true that we ourselves could stop believing and fall into gross sin and be lost forever? I mean, these are really practical questions, aren't they? I mean, when you're living your Christian life and, and you see Satan's tempta temptations and his devices and you see the world which is trying to do everything it can to derail your security in Christ's love and then you even look inside your own heart, regenerate though it may be, and you ask yourself the question, there are a lot of things that are against me. Am I going to make it? Is it going to happen? Am I secure? What about that day of judgment? Oh yes, we know all too well that people are against us. We know that Satan and his demons are against us. We know that. We know that the world is against us and hurls its taunts against us so as to destroy us. And yes, we ourselves know all too well, sometimes miserably so, that we are shooting ourselves in the spiritual foot. We know that. 
sometimes wounding ourselves terribly. Paul is not saying who can be against us as though no one is really against us. See, that's the, that's the genius of this concluding paragraph. He brings it up, and he's already talked about it in all of these other chapters that we've studied in Romans, and he's saying, matter-of-factly, yes, they're all there. Yes, Satan is there. Yes, his hosts are there. Yes, the world itself is nipping at your heels. Yes, even you yourself will fall and stumble But even with all of those things, because God is who He is, and since He's for us, who really can be against us? In reality, really who? And He proves that very logic in verse 32. Nothing, no one, and no thing can be so against us that neither they nor it are able to insecure our eternal relationship with God the Father. That's his point. No matter what comes at you, it's not going to happen. Folks, that's assurance. That's security. It is because God the Father has already given us the most costly gift in His own value scheme. He's already given us everything. Why would we doubt that He would give us any lesser thing? Or some things? Or or maybe a few things in a few places and times? No, Paul says all things. Will He not graciously give us all things? Did we not read in Romans 5, 8-9 that while we were still weak, while we were still in that weakened condition, in that ungodly condition, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He may not be on yours or my timetable, but He's always on time. Always on time. And I can't finish verse 32 by not commenting on that word spare. It's it's too passive a word. God who did not spare. Translation of the word paradidomai. Folks, this is a handing over. This is a handing over. That's what that means. It's reminiscent of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant being handed over for slaughter. It's even used in the New Testament of Jesus Himself being handed over by His own initiative. That's closer to the idea. It's not just God not sparing His own Son as though there was some passivity about this. No, this is what God initiated. This is what God did. He handed over His own unique Son, and if He has done such a thing, will He not also, with this handing over, with the completion of redemption, not graciously give us all things? Of course. Of course He will. Octavius Winslow, quoted by John Murray, says this, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money. Not Pilate for fear. Not the Jews for envy. But the Father for love. That's why it was done. That's why it's so theologically correct to answer the question, Who killed Christ? By giving this answer, God did. 
God did. God the Father. Why? Because it was the only way that our salvation could be secure. That's the only way. That was the only answer. It was for love that the Father handed over the Son of God to be put to shame and to be put in a brutal form of execution so that God the Father could graciously give us all things. Do you believe that? Do you believe these things? Are you, my friend, experiencing the joy of having a secure salvation? Notice I didn't say that you needed to ask for the security of your salvation. If you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, you have that security. You need to experience the joy of it. I think so many people have lost the joyful sense of their assurance that Christ is theirs and they are Christ's. Do you see how practical this is? This is doctrinal truth that comes alive with the practicalities of knowing the joy of your eternal relationship with Christ and His forever love. It's not a fanciful love. It's a forever love. You say, but what about my suffering in this life? I can't seem to get past my my sufferings, my, my trials, these tests. Well, if that's... You this morning, beloved, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice something. Have you ever noticed, look back at Romans 8.28, that familiar verse. Have you ever noticed that in Romans 8.28, Paul says that God Himself is working all things, do you see that phrase? All things together for our present and eternal good. And notice now in Romans 8.32, in only a few verses later, he says that God is so gracious to us that He is determined to give us all things. Wow. You mean to tell me that there is truth to the idea that the all things, no matter what they are, including suffering, including pain, will be that God is working those for our present and eternal good and that God at the same time in this life and even through those same trials, the all things of this life will also graciously give me all things? Yes, that's what he says. Don't you think we can endure the all things of Romans 8.28 for the sake of receiving the all things of Romans 8.32? Of course we can. You can run the race. You can do it. When you understand the all things of Romans 8.32, then you'll understand how you can endure whatever the all things of Romans 8.28 is that you're going through. That's the first question and answer. Look at the second one. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? There is yet another rhetorical question which Paul poses here. It's very interesting how he does it though. This is a future tense verbal idea. Who shall in the future bring any charge against? against God's elect. It's almost, as it were here, a picturing of the courtroom scene of God's heavenly courthouse. And whoever the prosecuting attorney might be, including, by the way, Satan himself, since he's said to be the constant accuser of the brethren day and night, and maybe the others who are a part of the prosecution team are the world, 
attempting to indict us, these unbelievers, or even we ourselves at times grappling with our own sinfulness, which weighs us down if possible and would indict our consciences if possible and then bring into question whether or not we really are secure in Christ. And for which I would say that's a pretty formidable prosecution team, isn't it? Satan, the world, even sometimes my own wicked thoughts that would doubt and deny the security of my own salvation. That's a pretty formidable prosecution team. We stand, as it were, in this scene and we're on that defense table and the prosecution is on the other side and God the Father is the judge And the prosecution team is saying, I am officially bringing a charge against this person who claims to be elect, chosen. And isn't it somehow so true at times in our Christian lives that when we're living defeated, weak, ineffective existences, not really sure of whether or not we know of God's love and grace, that we're sitting at that defense table ourselves and listening to the proceedings and saying, I don't even know either. I don't know that I know either. And I'm struggling with this. What's the verdict going to be? What's, what's the judgment? We quietly or maybe even sometimes not so quietly as the case may be fear the wrath and the judgment of God regarding our sin But I want you to know, beloved, that as Paul is wrapping up chapters 5 through 8, and with all that he's taught us regarding our lives, he concludes in verse 30 by answering this penetrating question with a bold declaration. Look at it, verse 33. It is God who justifies. God. Put an exclamation point here. No matter who is making the accusation, regardless of whatever may be said about myself, if I'm one of God's chosen, one of His elect, that means He's chosen me and no one or no thing can be laying a valid charge against me. I'm not guilty. That's the defense. That's the most effective defense. That's the only defense. Declaratively, with eternal finality, I'm acquitted. No penalty when I arrive at the courthouse of God's judgment. Don't you want that? Don't show up there with self-justification. Don't do it. Don't show up there with a hoped-for justification. It's not a human justification. It is God who justifies. That's who is doing it. You want to know that when you're sitting at that defense table, that your defense attorney is none other than Jesus Himself. That's what you want. And you don't need Johnny Cochran. And you don't need some all-star team. Because you have Jesus Himself, and that's all you need. And when you are standing there robed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, you don't even have to utter a word. He'll do it for you. And what will He do? 
The defense attorney is Christ Himself who pleads on behalf of the defense team which needs to be made up only of Himself and you who are sitting there. And if that's not enough, you even have the Holy Spirit as your witness. And who are the recipients of God's pardon? The elect. The elect. The chosen ones. Oh, it may appear at times as though you are struggling. We may be confused. We may stumble. We may temporarily lose our balance. But Christ clears away the cobwebs from our thinking. He picks us up where we fall and He straightens our imbalances so that we stand tall and strong and we are robed in the very righteousness of Christ when we stand at the judgment. Isn't that what we read in John 17? Father, You gave them to Me. You gave Me this group. And it includes, of course, those those initial disciples, but then he goes on to say, not just for them, but for all of those who believe through their word, and I have lost none of them. Never lost a case. Christ has never lost a case. Never will. He's called and chosen us to be His own disciples. We're declared not guilty for our many sins against God, yet God the Father took away those sins when He handed over Jesus to be the substitute and to be the one who was judged in our place. Do you rejoice in that? What a rejoicing! You say, I don't rejoice in that. Well, then I say, repent. Repent and believe. Believe this. That's your responsibility. That's what you're called upon to do. That's what you must do. And if you don't, you'll be judged for not doing. Who is there to bring a charge on the day of judgment against God's elect? Not the elect. Because it is God who justifies. And... If that weren't enough, if if this weren't enough in the defense of my case before God, look at the third question. Who is to condemn, verse 34? Who is to condemn? Here's the answer. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Yes, I said, you must repent. You must believe. You say, well, what do I repent of? What is it I believe? Just this. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who's at the right hand of God. In other words, when He ascended into heaven, you remember that scene in Acts chapter 2, He ascended into heaven. He accomplished the work of divine redemption and He now stands at the right hand of God the Father and He is pleading our case. He's never lost one. And when He pleads, He's efficacious. It's always heard. It's always believed. The verdict is in. He says, I've lost None of them, and I stand with the work accomplished 
And I'm doing one thing now that the cross has come and gone. I am interceding for the elect so that they are not in any way condemned and sent to judgment. Do you know that's the continuing work of Jesus Christ? He's interceding. He's bringing our case before the Father. And He's telling the Father, don't judge Him. Don't judge her. Satan is doing that very thing. The world is genuinely believing that they have claim on that life. And there are in their own hearts at times a doubt about whether or not they have this security of Christ's love. And I tell you as Christ Himself, they do. They do. Why should we ever doubt this idea of security? How is it that anybody who professes Jesus Christ can assume from these questions and these answers that you could lose your salvation? It absolutely cannot and will not happen on the authority of God's Word. Because He is standing at the Father's right hand as the only authoritative intercessor for those who stand before the Father's courtroom to hear the charges against them. And Christ's answer is this. The charges were removed at Calvary. They were removed. Done. Finished. They are acquitted. And that's precisely why Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus? And do you want to know what the motive of the Father is? It's that next question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's the motive. The motive is love. The motive is that Jesus Christ set His face as a flint toward Jerusalem so that He might redeem a humanity that He could one day stand authoritatively and efficaciously before God and say, do not bring a charge against these My elect ones. And why, Jesus? Why, Father? Why, Holy Spirit? Love. Love. Love for undeserving sinners. You say, well, are you absolutely sure, Paul? Are you absolutely, 100% sure? And as though we couldn't have already been persuaded, he goes with all of this description that says nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. And you say, what are those? Well, we'll have to save those for next time. Do you want to know what cannot separate us from the love of Christ? You come next time and we'll find out. Let's pray together. Oh, loving Father, loving Lord, 
How could we doubt? How could we doubt? Oh, this blessed assurance. This love divine. It does demand that I give my life, my soul, my all. But Lord, there are times when it seems as though my life, my soul, my all, just in my own effort is simply not enough. How can I know, how can I be assured that I have your love forever? Will you love me forever? Lord, thank you for showing us so clearly that we are yours and that you are ours. Oh Lord, I pray for those here who do not know of this motivated love, who have not repented and believed that Christ Jesus died more than that, that He was raised, and that He now stands at Your right hand authoritatively declaring those who are His, O Father, bring into that courtroom others even today who will be declared not guilty acquitted may it be so father and for us who already believe who've already repented who love Christ Jesus and love his death and his resurrection and affirm his ascension as your authoritative right hand, we bask in your love. We, we can't describe your love in its fullness, but we receive it. We embrace it because we're, we know we're sinful and we know that your love is the only thing that will bring us to glory. Thank You, Father. Thank You, Son. Thank You, Holy Spirit. We praise You, three in one. Amen.